Oh, and welcome to Right Care Baptist. Today, Henry and I are with Athena Hobbs, an infectious disease pharmacist at Baptist Memphis, and we're going to talk to you about therapeutics in COVID-19. Welcome, Athena. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for, so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your clinical practice? Certainly. I'm an infectious diseases clinical pharmacy specialist and the co-chair of the antimicrobial stewardship um, program here at Baptist Memphis. I went to pharmacy school at the University of Texas and then did a PGY-1 general practice residency at the University of Chicago and then a second year specialized in infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship at the University of Texas. And then I have been with Baptist for about five years since then. I've had, had a blast getting to work with antimicrobial stewardship and ID. Yeah, well, we are very lucky to have you. You're fantastic to work with. Henry, do you want to kick us off and tell the audience what we want to accomplish with the episode? Uh, thank you, Jake. I'd love to. And Athena, welcome welcome to our podcast series. And Athena, to those listening to the podcast, uh, has just a wealth of knowledge around the uh, management of, of a series of um, both uh, bacterial as well as viral uh, diseases. And in that role then, Athena, you have a great deal of experience and have been following, I know, with, uh, with uh, close interest, just the evolving way in which uh, COVID-19 um, has been, first off, understood pathophysiologically, but then also the various treatments that have been tried. So we, we look forward to hearing from you today uh, how we have evolved over the last four to six months, uh, and then what you feel like uh, might be some of the future uh, treatments, uh, some of the emerging therapies. Uh, so we look forward to hearing from you today, and we, we certainly welcome you to the podcast. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Henry. Yeah, so one of the things I wanted to talk about just is how much the treatment of COVID-19 has changed over these last four to six months. Can you just walk us through the early days of the treatment of COVID-19? What were we doing um, and how has that evolved? Absolutely. Uh, things have changed so much. They're changing still so quickly. It's something like uh, 1,500 articles every week are published on COVID-19. So trying to stay up to date with everything has been it's been a, a team a team effort, definitely. I've been relying on my colleagues in lab and infection control and our physicians, of course, that are helping um, stay, stay up to date. Um, but to start us out the early days, we really didn't have a lot to go on. SARS-CoV-2 is the, the, the virus, obviously, that causes the disease, coronavirus 19, COVID-19. And early on, we were mainly relying on what we knew about SARS and MERS, which are both themselves coronaviruses, and looking at what we've used effectively in the past to treat those infections. And it's not a lot. Unfortunately, virology is not, uh, there's not a whole lot of just miracle drug antivirals out there that are going to knock out viruses. So a lot of it is supportive care. So early on, we're mainly using data for uh, in vitro data, looking at what agents or what molecules are potentially active against the organism in test tubes. And one of those, as we all, I'm sure, can remember, um, hydroxychloroquine, uh, we thought it was going to be potentially a game changer. Had some, it had in vitro efficacy against coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, but um, 
ended up in clinical trials, we found out a couple months later that was not um, not effective, and that's been shown in multi multiple different studies now at, at different time frames of the disease. So looking at severe disease, people who got hydroxychloroquine, no, um, no difference in their outcomes. People who were just exposed and they were using hydroxychloroquine as post-exposure prophylaxis, no difference. So we've kind of seen uh, study after study now that's showing it's not very effective. Another big agent that looked potentially hopeful at the beginning was azithromycin. That came primarily from a French study that looked at azithromycin in combination with um, hydroxychloroquine. The background of this study is really interesting, actually. They only had, people only were on azithromycin as to potentially cover any bacterial uh, co-infection. So they weren't even evaluating azithromycin for the use of uh, SARS-CoV-2. And for good reason, it turns out there's no in vitro efficacy data for azithromycin. And now studies have shown that really there's no difference when using azithromycin as well. Um, so those were our two big guns for early on. <laughs> yeah, and it seemed like that time period went on for quite some time and, and back and forth on and off again for a while. But we feel like the, the dust has finally settled on those. Or we, I, I understand there's still dozens, if not more so, trials underway with hydroxychloroquine throughout the U.S. and, and worldwide. Are we still waiting on other things, or are we, is the case pretty much closed, do you think? I think the case is pretty much closed. The WHO actually dismissed that arm of the trial, the hydroxychloroquine. As we wait longer, we've seen more and more studies that have come out. So now even in um, kind of that moderate time frame of uh, not severe disease, but just presenting with hospitalization, there's no difference in outcomes in those patients as well. So I, I personally think the book is pretty much closed on hydroxychloroquine. And then some studies have even suggested that it's potential harm with uh, increased risk of cardiac side effects, especially with azithromycin. So there's that concern of harm as well. Thank you for that. So in the early days, there was also just a lot of news releases based on in vitro data, based on just theoretical data about how COVID-19 attacks cells, you know, with the, the ACE enzyme. So there's a lot of news reports out about not taking NSAIDs, not taking your ACE inhibitor, whether or not ACE inhibitors would be protective. So a lot of uh, agencies came out and said, keep taking these if, if you're on them or some were giving some precaution and some organizations had um, in their protocols whether or not they use those or, or not. I haven't seen a whole lot of follow-up since those early months on, you know, if any studies have been done showing any, any benefit or harm for using any NSAIDs or ACE inhibitors. You know, have you found anything in the literature? What have you seen out there? You know, what is your advice for those people that are afraid to take their NSAIDs because of COVID-19? Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about that um, kind of early on. And really looking at the mechanism of how um, SARS-CoV-2 enters the cell, it is really interesting. It kind of attaching to the ACE2 receptor. And so that theory is on whether we should continue or discontinue or start <laughs> ACE inhibitors in patients. But really, the consensus consensus guidelines have, have recommended just to continue if patients are already taking, like you've already mentioned. And really, there hasn't been a whole lot of um, updates since then, since the early days on, on that. And really, no studies have shown any negative effects with taking NSAIDs and, and SARS-CoV-2. There's no association between any worse clinical outcomes, so far at least, <laughs> with either of these agents. Yeah, 
I think we would have had enough time if there was harm from these agents, we would have seen it so far showing up in the literature, but so far I haven't heard or seen anything related to it, which is surprising because I know that there's still some patients that are um, reluctant to take NSAIDs right now and have switched all the way or switched over to Tylenol for a lot of yeah. their ailments. You know, so you mentioned keeping up with the literature and how you have a team that does it. What sort of sources are you looking for for updates related to this? What are you looking at on a day-to-day -day basis and how do you manage that? information deluge? <laughs> That's a, a good question. So one of the wonderful things that the Infectious Diseases Society of America, the IDSA, um, did this year was they opened up registration or uh, membership, I guess, to anybody who's interested. So anybody can become a member now and be and get updates on uh, new literature for COVID-19. So I actually receive a daily email from them. It's incredibly timely and really interesting information. And I feel like a lot of times I'll hear, I'll hear some of these things in the headlines, um, but I won't actually get to read the articles. But the IDSA actually sends out these links that you can go to the actual articles and read, um, actually pull them and see what kinds of patients they looked at, is this applicable to our population. So those are the kind of things that I'm looking for. Um, I also am lucky to have a, uh, a really great uh, ID pharmacy network. So I'm involved in a couple of different ID um, pharmacy organizations that uh, we communicate pretty regularly on any updates um, that we're seeing in the literature and then also things that we're seeing in our practices. So it's, it's a nice community that's kind of sprung up around um, everybody essentially being in the, same, in the same boat and we're all trying to do our best and stay up to date with, uh, with everything. So it's, it's been, uh, but it is a, a deluge, <laughs> quite, a, quite a bit of information. <laughs> it's good to know about that IDSA daily update. I did not know about that. I've been getting the New England Journal, Journal Watch article updates every day, which I find very helpful when I have COVID-19 section, but I'll have to check out that IDSA one and maybe provide it as a link on this, on our show notes for today. So let's move on. Let's talk a little bit about remdesivir. When did that really start emerging as a therapeutic option for COVID-19? Yeah, they were studying it pretty early on in April. So it's a mechanism of action. I'm sure everybody, everybody on this call already knows, but it uh, uh, inhibits viral replication. And so uh, it had already been, it's already been studied for Ebola. So there's studies in like New England Journal that I had pulled when this when we we're first starting looking at remdesivir to see how it did with Ebola. It's a, a different virus, um, obviously it's not coronavirus, but um, just looking at how it works and how it's, it potentially um, can help our patients. Um, so being studied pretty early on in April, uh, only in studies though, so we, we didn't really have access to it. And then mid-May, we received the FDA's emergency use authorization, the EUA. Uh, so it's a kind of a, like an emergency approval so that we were able to receive drugs. At Baptist, we've been able to receive it since about mid-May. Okay. And you know, one of the things that people are pointing out right now is that the mortality rate for COVID-19 was much higher in March and April, and it has declined some over the summer. Some have attributed that to the age of the population that is getting COVID-19 right now, but some have attributed to some of the newer therapeutics that we're using. Um, have you found that to be the case in any of your reading or in practice, just more use of remdesivir uh, early on in these patients has been helpful? Yeah, uh, that's a tricky, <laughs> tricky question. I think um, I, 
I think everybody is looking for a miracle drug. We're all wanting that golden, that uh, silver bullet, I guess. Um, I don't think that remdesivir is it, and I think that uh, Anthony Fauci really, Dr. Fauci really um, summarized it best, saying that it's it's our drug of choice right now because we don't have anything better. But in reality, a viral it inhibits viral replication, so it's it's essentially like Tamiflu. It it doesn't have any mortality benefit. Um, the trial that we, the best trial data that we have is the ACTT trial currently um, evaluating remdesivir and really didn't show any mortality benefit at all, only really showed a faster time to clinical improvement in certain patients, and even then it wasn't helpful in patients who were already intubated, um, so really only helpful in people who were on supplemental oxygen, um, which makes sense if, it, you know, if the virus is already just completely running rampant, you're not going to do much with a viral replication inhibitor. It's just the cat's already, already out of the bag. Right. And so have you all pretty much segregated that? So you'll use remdesivir for those early patients that are on oxygen but not intubated. And then we haven't talked about this yet, but uh, the role of the recovery trial and steroids on those later patients that are intubated and developed ARDS, is that how you all are kind of uh, separating out your treatments? Yes. We're trying to practice evidence-based medicine as, as much as possible, um, trying to stay up to date. But I should say we're recording this on July the 22nd, so by this Friday, who knows? We may have we may know some more information. But um, but essentially, yes, we're trying to follow the data and follow where we think people are going to receive the most benefit from it. Because um, the other thing we haven't even really talked about is the the limited access to some of these treatments. So. Remdesivir in particular is is very difficult to obtain. We only have certain allocations, and we know that it's it's not necessarily going to be enough for the number of patients that we have in the hospital. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I was curious to know of the percentage that you would want to use remdesivir on. What percentage have you actually been able to use it on? Can you say? Um, so the allocation process has just started this week, uh, just yesterday essentially. So we're kind of uh, forecasting here, but the, we're anticipating that we potentially be able to use it in 80% of the patients that we would want to use it in. Although we've just changed our criteria to start it earlier in patients, there was a, a requirement for four liters of oxygen previously from the Tennessee Department of Health, um, but our uh, hospital as a system just met and and talked about well the study the ACTT trial really showed efficacy in reducing that I guess viral illness that symptom time from 15 to 11 days really only in people who had oxygen who are requiring oxygen so we're trying to limit it to that use right now but definitely not going to be able to treat all of our patients unfortunately so let's move on to immune modulators. We haven't talked about them so far. What role do they serve in the treatment of COVID-19? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned the recovery trial earlier with steroid use, and I think steroids have been been really interesting. We've been originally concerned about using steroids because looking at the studies in the use of steroids for SARS and MERS, it found that it could prolong a time of viral repl replication um, and potentially prolong that symptomatic time as well. So there was concern around using steroids initially, and then after the recovery trial came out showing that people who received dexamethasone once daily for six milligrams once daily for up to 10 days, 
that they actually had a mortality benefit. Uh, we've started using that for patients if they are requiring oxygen. So um, we started using that to kind of help modulate that inflammatory response. But I guess when we're thinking about COVID-19 as a, as a disease, we think about the initial presentation, um, how some people will present, and they'll just have that kind of pulmonary response, they'll have just that classic viral pulmonary um, infection. And then some of our patients are going to progress onto that uh, second stage where they have overwhelming inflammatory response. And then some will progress even into um, ARDS, which we're trying to, <laughs> trying to prevent. So really, the use of these inflammatory um, inhibitors like tocilizumab, steroids, um, we're trying to use those early enough so that we'll try to prevent people from going into that uh, huge inflammatory uh, cascade and that kind of second phase of COVID. And so how are you determining when the right time is for that? Are you monitoring certain biomarkers? Absolutely. Uh, so ideally, um, tocilizumab being an IL-6 inhibitor, um, just one of those cytokines that has, plays a huge role in the, um, in the cytokine cascade, we would ideally we would be able to get IL-6 levels and kind of see where those are before giving um, tocilizumab. But unfortunately, it's not. Those are send out levels for most hospitals, so we haven't been able to monitor that as closely as we would like. Um, so we've looked at a couple different things. Um, cytokine release is a a process that's not ne not unique to COVID, and so we looked at where else we can borrow literature to to kind of help guide our utilization. Because really, there's still not a good consolidated recommendation for uh, for use of tocilizumab. Um, so one of the things we looked at were was data coming from the from the hemonc literature when they are worried about uh, cytokine release syndrome. And so some of the things we look for are temperature, uh, we look at respiratory status, whether they're requiring vasopressors, and then those biomarkers that you were talking about, we look at ferritin, CRP, D-dimer, LDH, and then even some cytopenias can occur with a cytokine release, so we'll look at platelets and lymphocytes as well. Um, basically, if patients meet two or more of those criteria, then they're, they have qualified for receiving tocilizumab at, at Baptist, at least. And have you seen those go up even before the patients are intubated in, in ARDS, or is it usually afterwards? We'd like to use them before, so we'd like to try to prevent them from getting into that full-on uh, fulminant inflammatory cascade, so we'd like to give it before. Um, so the markers that we're looking at are elevated, but they're not just completely out of control at that point. Are there any other therapeutics that you're currently using to treat COVID-19 infections? One of the questions I have is, you know, how many of these patients are being treated concomitantly with antibiotics? You know, you have this patient coming in with a viral pneumonia, but it's difficult to tell on admission if it's viral versus bacterial. So are most of them being placed on antibiotics on admission? Uh, yes, yes, we're using a lot of antibiotics in these patients. Uh, as an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist, it, it kills my soul just a little bit <laughs> when we try to treat a viral pneumonia with um, with antibiotics. And I, I, you know, I recognize, of course, that you can have bacterial co-infection or um, super infection afterward. Um, but something that's been really helpful, um, there have been guidelines now that have been published on the utiliza utilization of antibiotics for 
um, patients who come in presenting with something like community-acquired pneumonia when you're suspecting COVID. So looking at um, some of the newer literature and really something that's been helpful for us as well has been procalcitonin. So an elevated procalcitonin is pretty specific to a biomarker for um, bacterial infection. So if your procalcitonin is negative, they're presenting with a, a viral picture, then we really don't need antibiotics at that point. That's helpful. So even if the lab is not, the COVID-19 lab is not back yet, because we know our turnaround times are, are not where we want them to be right now due to a shortage of reagents across the country. So even if that patient comes, comes in, classic COVID-19 viral pneumonia, but you don't have that lab back yet, the literature would suggest and the recommendation would be to check a procalcitonin and treat as a viral pneumonia versus putting that patient on antibiotics and waiting for the COVID-19 lab to come back? Correct, yes. You normally would recommend getting a procalcitonin originally when they first come in and then another one 24 hours later. So even if they're very early in their bacterial infection, you'll catch it 24 hours later. You'll, you'll see that increase in their procalcitonin if they do have a bacterial infection. We actually have a procalcitonin guideline to help um, kind of guide the utilization what cutoffs to use for different infections uh, for ICU versus non-ICU. Um, so that is uh, a resource that's available for our, for our clinicians as well to help help guide that use. Okay, that's good to know. And our turnaround time for procalcitonins, those come back, is that next day or is that usually same day? It's very, very fast. Um, I would say within 24 hours uh, at, at the longest. All right. Well, so that pretty much covers the, the current treatment of that early stage COVID-19 patient and then the later stage once the inflammatory response has come into play. What sort of things are you looking forward to in the future? You know, as you mentioned, we're recording this on 722. There's been a lot of news this week about a couple of promising vaccine trials. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing with those? Absolutely. I think we're actually about to enter a phase of just overwhelming vaccine information because we've been doing our best to to kind of treat treat the infection, to treat the inflammatory process. And now I think we're really getting ready to see just a ton of information about vaccines. Um, so there's a really nice resource. It's called the uh, the Vaccine Tracker, New York Times Vaccine Tracker, that it's tracking um, over 165 vaccine candidates that are being studied right now. 27 of those are in human trials, but what we're looking at um, most closely are those that are in the phase phase two and the phase three trials. There's actually one study that has been um, quote unquote approved, but we have to keep in mind the looking at approval in different countries. So this was uh, approved in China. They actually skipped the phase three trial. They said that they showed safety and efficacy in phase one and phase two. They skipped the phase three trial and are essentially vaccinating um, their military. They said up to 30,000 of their military. So that vaccine is technically approved, though certainly not um, not FDA approved and not available in the United States. Uh, there's four studies in the phase three trial right now, uh, in phase, phase three trials. And these are those really large efficacy studies. They're looking at thousands of patients. Two of those are, are looking at viral vectors. One of them is an inactivated vaccine, and one is a, a repurposed vaccine. One is, I guess, looking at the AstraZeneca-Oxford collaboration. 
they're looking at a phase two, phase three study in England, and then a phase three in South America. They're saying that they're they're hoping to have emergency vaccine available by October, looking at two, being able to produce two billion doses, which is a huge a uh, huge amount. So that's hopefully pretty promising. There's another Chinese um, company that's kind of partnering with their their government that's in phase three. They're looking at a phase three right now with 15,000 volunteers in the UAE. Um, another company in Brazil and another one in Australia that are all in phase three. The U.S. companies really don't, most of those are actually in phase two right now. So Moderna and uh, Novavax are two in particular that received um, federal funding. Uh, so the federal government identified five kind of collaborations and um, groups that they wanted to just federally fund, and they're actually um, providing billions of dollars in federal funding to try to increase the the productivity and increase the time, uh, or uh, make it fast, get us get us vaccine faster. Essentially, they call it uh, warp speed, right. but um, they're hoping. So Moderna is actually starting their phase three study at the end of this month, and they're hoping to have uh, their goal is to have vaccine available by early 2021. Um, another one is their goal is to have 100, 100 million vaccines by the end of this year. Uh, and most of them are looking at the end of 2021, though, for um, feasibly having a, a lot of vaccine. So we've got a lot of candidates on the market right now. <laughs> yeah, and that is very promising news, and I'm sure everybody that's listening is, is really hoping for a vaccine really quickly because that to me is the only thing that's going to get us out of this mess is to have a promising vaccine that being said there was also news this week or last week about just the waning antibody response that they had found in some COVID-19 patients that and followed over time did you see that study and do you have any thoughts or comments on on that part yeah absolutely I think when we consider vaccines I have three um, three questions in particular. Uh, the first one being efficacy, and the FDA has already said that they're not going to approve a vaccine that has less than a 50% response rate, um, which seems reasonable. 50% doesn't seem like a lot, but if we look at other vaccines, um, t the TB vaccine, there actually is a TB vaccine. We don't even get it in the U.S. because um, we we have such a low prevalence here in the United States, but only a 70 to 80% efficacy. And our standard flu vaccine only has a 40 to 60% efficacy. So my first question is, are, are we gonna be able to produce a vaccine that is efficacious? Um, and in that kind of efficacy data, looking at how do you, you cannot ethically really expose people to COVID, to SARS-CoV-2 um, to kind of speed up that trial uh, that I think that's that's a concern. You know, how long is it going to take us to figure out how efficacious these vaccines are? Is, is another question. Um, the second question kind of goes to your point about immunity and and waning immunity. So we've seen that circulating antibodies um, last for a few months, but uh, so it kind of just raises the question: Do we? Is this going to mean that we need a booster vaccine? Is this going to mean that a vaccine isn't going to be? efficacious at all or not going to have lasting immunity. But I think something that we need to uh, keep in mind too is that the T cell immunity is very important as well. And uh, some of these studies in particular are looking at T cell response. So depending on on the 
the company in the study, they're, they are looking for that response as well. And then uh, memory B cells as well, I think we'll have those circulating, we should have memory, circulating memory B cells that should be able to ramp up the antibody response. So even if we don't have a lot of circulating antibodies, um, those memory B cells should hopefully be able to, to ramp up that response. And then my, my last question about vaccines really is the amount of production. Um, we have 328 million people in the United States uh, as of 2019, and a lot of these vaccine trials are saying, well, we're hoping to have 100 million vaccines by the end of, end of the year, which sounds fantastic, but thinking about where these companies are and they're trying to provide vaccine for the rest of the world as well. Um, so I think those are my kind of three questions. But waning immunity is definitely, definitely uh, something that we're learning more about daily. Yeah, I, I definitely share those sentiments and that the waning immunity worries me, but the, the T cell and, and memory B cell response is, is something I find hopeful and I'm trying to read more about. So I know we are running close on time. Do you have any final thoughts or closing comments, takeaway points you want to share with the audience? I think really just focusing on what we can do right now. So I think a lot of times, um, a lot of times I get in my own head too much and I'm thinking, well, you know, vaccine's going to take a year, you know, a minimum. The, uh, we don't really have any good treatment, but I think hopefully trying to focus on the things that we can do right now. So wearing masks has been something that has been, I think, politicized too much, but what we've seen in the literature data has shown that wearing mask is, masks is efficacious. Um, one study in particular that I'm just thinking of off the top of my head is the um, study at, of two, uh, two hairdressers in, in the north, in, in, in M state, I can't remember, Michigan, Montana, something, um, but they, they were dressing, you know, hairdressers uh, who had symptoms, they had coronavirus um, symptomatic disease, but, and they saw patients for five days while they were symptomatic. Um, but they were wearing masks, and the policy was to wear masks. So they were wearing masks. The um, customers wearing masks. They had over 140 interactions um, with different people, and nobody ended up developing coronavirus. So I think things like that, and seeing um, another study looking at universal masking policies in hospitals, and then hospital transmission dec decreasing significantly. I think things like that make it ever more important for us to. Um, just wear the mask. Like it, nobody likes wearing a mask. It's it's terrible. I wear glasses, and it's the worst. Not being you know, fog up your glasses. It's embarrassing. But um, really, really important for us to do that and continue to socially distance as much as possible. Uh, maintain uh, six feet of distance and to wash our hands frequently. So focusing on the things that we can do is what I'm what I'm trying to do. Oh yeah, those are very good points. And one of the things I found reassuring is that hospital workers are more likely to acquire the infection from somebody they live with or out in the community than from the actual hospital that they're working in. And I think that goes to your point about masks and, and proper PPE and, and the procedures we have in place. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Hopefully we can bring you back in, in the near future and talk about what we were doing in two months related to COVID-19 <laughs> and treatment. Hopefully that's <laughs> too much, but I'm glad we actually have some therapeutics and, and plans in place. Or if you do see a patient that comes in with COVID-19, you know what to reach for based on various stages and their 
disease course. And so it's not as much of a black box as it was back in March and April. I think that is, it's good to know that we have some sort of a plan, even if the treatments are not as effective as we want them to be. But I uh, just appreciate your time coming on. It's a pleasure to have you. And, and thank you everybody for listening to Right Care at Baptist. If you would like to redeem CME credit for this episode, please look in the show notes and fill out that brief survey. Thank you, Athena. Great. Thanks so much.